There are others coming in. Please come right on in. Make yourself at home. We're glad to have you. We do want to welcome our visitors and are very happy that you've come to worship with us today and hope that you'll feel free to worship here every time you can. Our greeters can be easily identified by their nice uh, ribbons that tell you who they are. Now then, our lesson today, our second lesson, is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. And I hope you'll be able to find a correlation between the first lesson and the second lesson. When Jesus read in the synagogue of Nazareth, he read from the Law and the Prophets. And then he explained the part of the Scriptures that were to be read. And so we have read this morning a lesson together from the Psalms. And in that lesson which we read from the Psalms, we read about the perplexity that comes to people uh, who are good and righteous, who see people, people who are not righteous and not good, and it's often in this world good. And, it's and then in chapter 16 of the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus is going to deal again with this problem of money. We were led by the way in the first part of our worship. We were led by the way in the first part of our worship by Dr. Warren T. Loftus, a medical doctor who is chairman of our board of deacons and who has been meeting with our finance uh, committee and will be meeting this uh, Tuesday evening with the session to work out the financial matters of our church. So now if you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter. Remember last week we talked about uh, a very shady sort of story, and yet a story that Jesus used in telling about a crafty, wily um, scoundrel who was, when he was fired because he had misused his master's goods, made good use of the limited amount of time that he had and acted quickly and uh, used his opportunity uh, to his own advantage very quickly. And Jesus said that the children of the light, that is, those of us who are in contact with God and want to live in God's way, ought to be wise and careful to use every single opportunity we have uh, to further the kingdom of God. And uh, he does not commend dishonesty, but what he did commend was the man's quick uh, thinking and his shrewd uh, thinking. Uh, now then, today we pick up along that same lesson, uh, for Jesus had been talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who were great lovers of wealth. If you look at verse 14 in chapter 16, you read these uh, words, and the Pharisees also who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. Now, why did they deride him? That is, scoff at him. They scoffed at him because Jesus had just said in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is material possession. And uh, then the scribes wanted to justify themselves before men. But God knoweth your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now then look down to verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass 
that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, or I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they will hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Amen. May God help us to understand this important part of his word. Many of you know that this past summer it was my great privilege to get to go along with one of our sons and my wife got to accompany us out to Vancouver to the Regent School of Theology where Dr. John Stott of England was teaching um, the Book of Acts and where Leon Morris of Australia was teaching also a course in Christology. There were also many distinguished other professors there and one of the things that seemed to fascinate me the most was the number of students who enrolled in economics. Economics always seemed terribly boring to me as I remember it when I was in college. I didn't care much about going, I hope I'm not hurting any economics teacher's feelings, but I didn't like it. And um, anyway, there were a lot of students lined up to, to go to the economics class. And uh, I did go sit on the fringes of some of the group discussions and I could see why they were lined up. Because they were bright, evangelical Christians who took seriously what the Bible teaches and the responsibilities which we have for trying to do something in a world where there is such an equitable distribution of wealth. Of course, the communists have done some thinking about this, and they've done some thinking that has caused the whole world to shudder and to tremble by their classless society and their enforced terrors upon people. And the politicians do thinking about it often because they wish to exploit things that exist where there are inequalities. But it is indeed time for young Christians to think about economics and to think about why it is 
that 25% of the world enjoys 75% of the world's goods. Why is it that there is such gross inequalities that exist? And Jesus, and especially the Gospel of Luke, has so much to say about the poor. Luke wants us to know that this baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, that this one who worked in a carpenter shop in Nazareth, that this one who spoke his beatitudes to a multitude of men uh, and women and children who were listening to him, were an oppressed people, a people who were denied often the ability to make money enough for one day. How else could it be that thousands could be standing around to hear him speak? Why would he use a parable about unemployment and wage earners? And if you study him carefully, the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that he has a great deal to say about the poor. I remember in 1974 in the great Lausanne Congress on Evangelism that much attention was given to this there and that the up-and-coming uh, great consultation that has to do with world evangelism that will occur in Bangkok in Thailand, right there in the shadow of Cambodia where 4, 000, 4 million people have perished and where hundreds of thousands are dying now, will meet a great Congress that will have to do with evangelism. And John Stott, one of the key people in that Congress, and Dr. Billy Graham and Dr. Leighton Ford and others, has said that the one thing they do not want is a whole host of affluent American preachers to go out there in mass. That what we do need is to get the feeling of the third world people and the, to know something of their level of anxiety because of the great needs that exist. Well, this concern about the poor was a great concern of this blessed Greek physician whom the Holy Spirit led to write down for us a life of Jesus and then the life of the early church and how it began. You remember on the plain when Jesus uh, preached his beatitudes right after his temptation. By the way, we can go even to that. When the temptation came to him in the wilderness, and this is recorded in Luke chapter 4, the devil came to Jesus and tempted him along lines like this. Uh, he said you can razzle-dazzle the people pinnacle by going up to the top of the pinnacle off. of the temple and casting yourself off. And we know the scriptures, and they all teach us that, that uh, the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. But Jesus was not going to be tempted into being the stunt man for the devil. Other and so the devil tried other uh, tacks to him. Uh, he said, look at these Don't they look like stones. Don't they look like some of the rolls that your mother makes of bread? And aren't you hungry after 40 days and nights of not eating? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? And we can make you the bread man. And this will be the key because hungry people will come to you. And then in a flash, he gave him 
a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you'll bow down and go my way with things, I'll deliver all these kingdoms to you. And Jesus resented all of this, and he would not allow it to be done. In one of the greatest books ever written, Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, he has an interesting scene when the Grand Inquisitor comes to talk with Jesus. This is all imaginary. And he tells Jesus that he did the wrong thing. That he was foolish not to listen to the devil and to turn the stones into bread. He said, you came into this world with some empty, vague promise. You came empty-handed. You came to bring freedom. But that's not what man wanted. You were foolish, Jesus. And again, the devil speaking. Do you see those stones in this desert? Turn them into loaves of bread, and men will follow you like cattle, grateful and docile, although constantly fearful, lest you withdraw your hand and they lose your loaves. But you did not want this. You thought, what kind of freedom will they have if their obedience is bought with bread? You said man does not live by bread alone. You said this, but do you know that for the sake of that earthly bread, the spirit of the earth will rise up against you and will confront you and will conquer you and they will follow the devil shouting, who is there to match the beast who first brought us fire from heaven and gave us bread? So you see, it's a great economic struggle that exists. And the devil wants followers. And the devil chides at Jesus here. But Jesus does not fall for this. And so when he preached his first sermon, after coming from this temptation scene, he goes into his own home church in Nazareth. Probably wouldn't be nearly as big as Gaither Chapel. And his first sermon was a tremendous... Because when they handed him... Because when they handed him the scriptures and he read to them from Isaiah, he read that marvelous passage about he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to set at liberty the captive, that is to make them free, to open the eyes of the blind, to cleanse the lepers. And you know, at first they were proud. They said, that sounds good. Our hometown boy is going to make it. We'll all be proud of him. And then he continued his sermon. He sat down and he began to tell them how that there was a day in Elisha's time when a widow of Zarephath, a pagan, a a widow of another race, was was hungry, and she was singled out and fed. Now, these people were race conscious. And then he told them how Naaman, a Syrian leper, had been healed. And all that infuriated them. So much so that they began to see that he was not going to work things out with his great power like they wanted it worked out. That he was not going to give them special privileges because they happened to be his friends in Nazareth. 
that when he moved into his capital, he was not going to say, because you have my accent and come from my hometown, you're going to get to work in the White House. <laughs> I remember when Johnson was president, I used to go up there and had this Texas accent and scare the operators to death. They thought I was the president when, uh, <laughs> when, uh, when I would be talking on the phone. But, but the, the dialect is very important. And uh, these people thought because uh, Jesus uh, spoke their dialect uh, and that Jesus was of their race and that Jesus had done all these mighty things that he was going to give them special privilege. But Jesus is not going to operate that way. He's not going to operate that way and he is going to have a special concern for the poor and not just the poor of Israel, but all the poor. All of the parables that he teaches from the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. He tells about the man who has a good harvest and instead of giving thanksgivings to God, he gives thanksgivings to himself and tears down his barns and builds bigger barns and says to his soul, take thine ease uh, because you have much goods laid up for many years. You remember how God spoke to him that night and said, thou fool. This night is thy soul required of thee. Who wants to be the richest man in the cemetery? Whereas the disciples were promised that God will take care of them, the less honored guest, Jesus tells us about reversals, he says that the less honored guests are to take the lowest places in order that they might be summoned to move up to higher places because the Pharisees and the scribes were, and the Sadducees were always scrambling around to see who got to sit where. And well, can become a bad thing if it leads us to the lost in the next world. And therefore, it's better to offer hope of spiritual reward. The poor to whom the gospel is preached are those who are needy and dependent upon God. And by the same token, the rich are those who are self-satisfied and feel no need of God. The fool is the man who feels no need of God and moreover, no stress of This is why during this time of the year when we get into stewardship, we begin to think about these things and what's going to happen to us because of our stewardship program. Well, then Jesus comes to our story Well, then Jesus comes to our story for today, which is quite a moving story. And he's going to tell us something about uh, possession. Uh, this is one of those stories that James Denny, the great Scottish theologian, says really doesn't need too much by way of explanation uh, because it's so simple that a little child can read it and get the point. There was a certain rich man we are told There was a certain rich man we are told in which was clothed in purple and fine linen. A purple would be the most expensive fine linen would be expensive. Fine and linen would be every day. And he fared he threw a big party every single day. He threw a big party. And there was a certain beggar named And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. This is interesting because this is the only time Jesus ever named any of his characters. But the name here, Lazarus. But the name Eliezer means God is my helper. Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. 
at his and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. You get the picture of luxury that exists. And what you have is a man who is not far away from a person who is in need, and yet he has no intention of doing anything for him. Now when it says crumbs that fell from his table, it's kind of important to remember that uh, uh, they didn't have serviettes or napkins like we have when we go to eat. They used big pieces of bread. And so they would take bread and they ate with their hands. They didn't use forks and knives or chopsticks. They, they, they used uh, their hands. And then when they finished, they would take bread and wipe it off and throw it aside. And I think he must have got some pretty good chunks of bread or they wouldn't have brought him there every day. Um, so they brought this man, Lazarus, and placed him there by, uh, the word dives is Latin for rich man. And this is what the rich man is usually called, dives. They brought him there at dives place and, and put him on his porch so that he might uh, get these big chunks of bread that would come after he had had one of his big feasts. This man was faring luxuriously. Now what do we learn from this and how does it happen today? We see the great disparity between wealth today. I saw a magazine advertisement and I didn't want to get this wrong so I tore it out and brought it with me. Here, this is what a, a one of our people from uh, the Arab rich oil lands a sultan bought on one of his trips to the United States. He purchased 19 Cadillacs, one for each of his 19 wives. He paid extra to have the cars lengthened. He also bought two Porsches, six Mercedes, a $40,000 speedboat, and then a truck to haul it with. And to this list, 16 refrigerators, $47,000 worth of women's luggage, two Florida grapefruit trees, two reclining chairs, and one slot machine. I wonder what he wanted with that. His total bill was $1,500,000, and he had to pay another $194,500 to have it delivered to him. That's luxury, isn't it? So you have this kind of wealth foolishly done, and we can easily condemn this, but we have to come back to our own proposition and think about ourselves. So here is the rich man, and here is Lazarus sitting at his gate. Now the, the interesting thing is there couldn't have been too many uh, he was not attentive to Lazarus. He didn't look at him. He didn't see him. He never got to know him. He never went outside and sat down and talked to Lazarus. We're not told that this rich man made his money in some evil way. We're just told that he didn't care. That he did nothing was his big sin. He didn't care enough to see what was going on right outside his gate. When I stop and think about this, because I grew up in a home of great poverty in the Depression, 
I can identify very easily with some of the feelings that poor people have. And I can, in my study on the work of evangelists in promoting social causes, I was pleased when I read that Care Hardy, who was the founder of the British Labor Party, came from a very poor home. And I went one time to Glasgow in Scotland. Glasgow is the largest city in Scotland. And I went to the Central Library, and I got some books, and I studied the life of Care Hardy. And when I studied about him, I could see why he founded the British Labor Party. It had to be founded because the laboring people were so exploited in Scotland at that time. He was brought up the eldest of seven sons and two daughters. His mother was a domestic servant. He was an illegitimate child himself. His father was a coal miner who, who refused to acknowledge him as his son and then finally did give him the name uh, who wouldn't acknowledge him. So the man that his mother later lived with, David Hardy, gave him his name. And they took this child to Glasgow. There they lived in a two-room, a two-room flat, one of 18 families in a tenement house where five families shared a drafty corridor and one single bathroom on the landing at the stairs. David Hardy, that's his father, his stepfather, was by turns a sailor, a carpenter, and a coal miner. When he was working, there was bread and jam and warm tea and plenty of sugar in it, and even a whole egg for Sunday breakfast. When an accident or unemployment intervened, the odds and ends in the household would disappear from the dresser and go to the pawnbroker. There would be whole days when no food would be in the house. Then Care Hardy's mother's bright personality would turn bitter. His father would lose confidence and become morose and full of shame. And feeling himself a failure, he would become drunk and quarrelsome and bitter. At the age of eight, now think of the little children that may be here today that are eight years old or under. At the age of eight, he got a job as a messenger boy at two shillings and sixpence a week. Later, he was a riveter's boy in a shipyard for four shillings and sixpence a week. But accidents were so frequent that the lad beside him fell one day to his death, and his mother made him take a safer job for less money. At about this time, he had his first bitter experience with being fired from a job. And this is what I really want you to hear. His father had been out of work for nearly six months. His young brother was sick of a fever from which he died, and his mother was pregnant with her fourth baby. Care had been up half the night, and he reached the bakery shop where he worked. He was 11 years old now. Where he worked, soaked by the rain and without breakfast. He was a half hour late. He was warned that day. And when the same thing happened the next day, the boss, who was a Presbyterian, by the way, 
and noted for his piety, interrupted his family prayers to fiery. Fifty years after that, Care Hardy remembered it. And I want to read you these words from an old man's diary. Quote, In front of the master was a very wonderful-looking coffee boiler in a great glass bowl of which the coffee was bubbling. The table was loaded with delicacies. My master looked at me and said, Boy, this is the second morning you've been late. My customers leave me if they're kept waiting for their hot breakfast rolls. Therefore, I dismiss you. And to make you more careful in the future, I have decided to fine you a week's wages. And now you may go. I wanted to speak and explain about my home, but a servant took me by the arm and led me downstairs. I knew my mother was waiting for my wages. As the afternoon was drawing to a close, I had to go home and tell her what had happened. It seemed like the final blow. That night, the baby was born, and the sun arose on the first day of January, 1867, over two rooms where there was neither fire to keep warm with, nor food. The memory of these early days abides with me and makes me doubt the sincerity of those who make a pretense in their prayers. Now you can see a lesson that's learned. That's where the British Labor Party came from. Now, Care Hardy was, by the way, a Christian, remained a Christian all of his life. And as a result of it, the communists had a terrible time. Trotsky came into England and tried to take over the Labor Party, but he couldn't get to it as long as Hardy was there because he didn't um, go for that. He believed in Jesus Christ. Now then, what I'm saying is here that Christians must have a concern for those who are outside our gate. We can't have a Bible in our hand and a Lazarus full of sores out on the front porch and feast in luxury every day. We have to figure out some way to be helpful. We've got to figure out some way to be helpful. So now look what happens. Both of them die. We read the words, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I wanted to read the King James because this is a great phrase in Negro spirituals, and it is a comfortable phrase, a happy phrase by mistreated people. Carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. That's all it says. The rich man died and was buried. The funeral director probably enjoyed that. He had a good, expensive funeral. And I'm sure that if that guy down in the grave could look up at all the people that were around the grave, he must have seen all his friends and probably the biggest preacher in town there saying how wonderful he was. And then a plop of dirt falls on top of the coffin. And then he thinks, boy, you don't know where I am. <laughs> all of this is reversed, you see. And this is what the lesson is going to teach you. The angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and he is buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. 
Now look at this. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He still thinks he can tell Lazarus what to do. He's saying, send that boy to bring me some water. (laughs) That's what he's trying to say from hell. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. It was a time when Lazarus was looking for a crumb from his table and now he's looking for a drop of water from Lazarus. But Abraham said, son, remember. And to me, this is going to be one of the most terrible things about the place of the finally impenitent. And that is memory. Remember, remember, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. To think that we could remember. We need to take advantage of the opportunity that we have while we have the opportunity. Remember that thou receivest good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And then beside all this, betwixt us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. You created that gulf before you ever got here. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then you see another sort of part of this drama. This man begins to think a little bit. And he says, then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that they may that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham (laughs) said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. I guess that uh, the rich man thought, well, if someone came back from the dead and scared the daylights out of them, maybe they would go get converted and do what's right with the rest of their money. But Abraham says to them, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. They have the preachers. Let them hear them. And look at what he says. He says, no, Father Abraham... But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. His argument is dismissed. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Isn't that the truth? It's the way it really worked out. If you stop and think for a moment, You remember there was a guy by the name of Herod who was a dissolute sensualist. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so he sent for Jesus to come to his place. But he didn't repent. This time we're right between Thanksgiving and Christmas and it's a good time for us to think about this. To be thankful for what we've got and to be good stewards of it for the glory of God.
And you know, Charles Dickens has got a great message in that little story of his, A Christmas Carol, when he has Scrooge remembering all the things and trying to talk to the people and he can't make them hear. So we have to take advantage of the opportunity to do good while we have the opportunity to do it. The big sin was inattention to the needs of others. The sin of not caring. You remember Stoddart Kennedy's poem. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drave great nails in his hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns, red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to our town, they simply passed him by. They never heard a hair of him, they only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained the winter rain that drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the streets without a soul to see that Jesus crouched against the wall and cried for Calvary. In Matthew 25, he says, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. I don't have time to read you from this precious little book by Malcolm Muggridge, Something Beautiful for God. But I'm so thankful that the Nobel Prize Committee gave Mother Teresa a Nobel Peace Prize this year for her work among the poor. Because, you know, she wrote to Malcolm Muggridge when he was still uh, not yet surrendered to Christ. And she says, I'm leaving Paris tomorrow, then for Venezuela on Sunday. I'm sure you'll pray for me. These days in England have been full with continual sacrifices. I think I understand you better now. I don't know why, but you, to me, are like Nicodemus. And I'm sure the answer is the same. Unless you become a little child, I am sure you will understand beautifully everything if you would only become like a little child in God's hands. Your longing for God is so deep, and yet he keeps himself away from you. He must be forcing himself to do so because he loves you so much as to give Jesus to die for you and for me. Christ is longing to be your food. No wonder Mugridge got converted uh, when you get prayed for like that. He's longing to be your food too, and he wants us to live up to our responsibilities of praying through and thinking through. Not how much we can give, but what we can keep of what he entrusts to us. Bow in prayer. Oh God, our Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ stands amongst us this day, willing to accept us as we are where we are, and willing to make us what we ought to become in order to be his faithful and true servants. 
We pray that all of us might belong to him, that we might give ourselves without any reservation to him to do with us as he pleases. The problems about us perplex us, but keep us from inactivity. Help us to seek your face and to do what we can where we can, always in the name of our blessed Lord, always seeking to honor him. If there are people here today who have not known Jesus as Savior, may they see from the love of this Christ who was concerned for the poor, his concern for those who are broken in spirit too, who are defeated by their sins, and his desire to win them unto himself. Help each one of us to know that we may give ourselves over to him in this hour and be faithful to him in all that we have and with all that we are. Lord God, help us to be poor in spirit, accepting your forgiveness of our sins and rich toward you in all good works and generosity expressed in the only way we can through kindness towards one another. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit our keeper and guide be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.